If you have your Bibles, please turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, this morning we'll be looking verses 21 through 35. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder when was the last time you told someone these words, I forgive you. Now think carefully. I suspect you have forgiven someone, but when was the last time you said those words? I forgive you. I'm guessing for most of us, it's been a while. Because those words have slipped from our common use. We say instead, oh, it's okay. Oh, don't worry about it. No problem. It's alright. We all make mistakes. It's fine. We're human. But we don't often, I think, say, I forgive you. Perhaps we're trying to escape the awkwardness of the situation. I don't know. But my fear is that even in the words that we use, we are minimizing forgiveness. And when we do that, we lose sight of what an amazing thing it is. Jesus gives us this story to teach us and to remind us what a radical thing forgiveness is. And I use that word radical very intentionally and very carefully. Radical has more than one meaning. It can mean extreme. It can mean out of the ordinary. Like we used to say in my generation, hey man, that's radical. We don't say that anymore. But it meant, you know, that's, that is out there. That is, that is extreme. But radical also means fundamental. It comes from the word that, that means the root of something. And when you talk about something being radical, you talk about getting down to the roots, to the very heart of a matter. Forgiveness among God's people needs to be radical in both senses of the word. It needs to be extravagant, extreme, unbounded. But it also needs to be deep. It needs to go to our very roots, our heart. In this story, we see both of those elements. God calls His people to let forgiveness be extreme. 
And He calls us to let forgiveness go deep. And so God reveals to us His radical forgiveness in order that we may be enabled to forgive one another. The first thing is to let forgiveness be extreme. If I was, uh, if I was given a whole hour for each sermon, and many of you are thankful that I'm not, but if I was given a whole hour each Sunday, I would have actually taken this passage and combined it with the one that comes before it, which we heard last week, the previous verses. Because we, we can't look at this story and ignore what sets it up, what comes before it. They really are one story. Uh, last week we saw Jesus giving instruction to His disciples on how to deal with sin in the Christian community. And, and how He instructed us to confront those who sin against us. And to involve, if necessary, other people, including the authority of the church, in dealing with sin. And the goal is to persuade our brother or our sister to turn from sin, to repent. And He warned us that if such a person does not repent, then on the authority of God's Word, we are to no longer call them a Christian. But instead to reach out to them as one who still needs to experience the grace of God. Though the love of God is evident in that passage in the way that He pursues us, and in the way He doesn't give up on us, and in the way He doesn't let us give up on each other, it's still a harsh teaching that reveals to us the judgment of God against sin. But as we seek to imitate and, and express God's judgment on sin, we need to be reminded that God's attitude is not one of gleeful justice running around looking for someone to condemn. That's not the Spirit of God ever. Rather, He is gracious and forgiving, full of mercy. And just as He calls us to imitate His holiness and His rejection of sin, He also wants us to imitate His abundant mercy. His extravagant, over-the-top forgiveness. And so after Jesus has said to His disciples, don't let anyone persist in their sin and, and, and expel the sin from among you, Call the sinner to repent. Confront them. For the sake of their well-being, call them back. Peter then asks the obvious question in verse 21. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now we, we were just discussing what to do if they don't repent. If they don't repent, you bring the authority of the church into the conversation and, and, and seek to persuade them and finally cut them off from, from the fellowship of, of the saved. That's what, they do, what you do if they don't repent. But what if they repent? And then sin again. And then you forgive them. And then they sin again. And then you forgive them. And then they sin again. And then you forgive them. And then they sin again. At what point do you stop forgiving? At what point do you say enough is enough? When do we stop showing mercy and get back to the judgment that we were talking about earlier? And Peter proposes a good, solid, biblical number. Seven, right? And actually, Peter's suggestion in context is a little extreme. The accepted answer in the day among religious authorities was three. You forgive someone three times for the same offense, and if you do that, you have done what could be reasonably expected of a, of a good and merciful person. And Peter says, I'm going to more than double that. I'm going with seven. 
And Jesus responds in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And some of your translations might say seven times 70, uh, which would be 490. Um, in case you're the type of the person that's, that's keeping track of apologies, and you say, you know what, I have forgiven this person 58 times, okay, just another 19 or so to go, and I'm cleared of my obligation. Please understand that Jesus was not trying to assign a number in answer to Peter's question. He's trying to assign an attitude, a position of the heart. If we think that our duty to forgive expires at a certain point, then we misunderstand the very nature of forgiveness. And to illustrate that, Jesus tells a story. Verses 23 and 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which we hear and go, I guess that's a lot. Okay. In today's term, that's $60 billion. The dude had a debt of $60 billion. That's the income of a small country or a not very small country. That's a lot of money. And many people try to figure out, well, how did somebody come up with that much debt? How do you owe somebody that much money? That's not the point. What Jesus has done is he's taken the largest number for which there existed a word in Greek, 10,000. They don't have a bigger numerical number than that in, in ancient Greek. And he took the, uh, the largest unit of currency in that day, a talent, which was a considerable sum of money. And he just combined them together. 10,000 talents. And, and people would hear that and have about the same reaction that you would have hearing $60 billion. That's the debt. The point is, we're not talking about a small debt. We're not talking about something that's big but manageable. There is no possible way this could ever be paid off. And so what happens next was common in the ancient world. If somebody had a debt that they wouldn't pay, verse 25, since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Unpaid debts have consequences, serious consequences. If we're to understand what this means for the kingdom of heaven, for us today, it's that our sins against God, our rebellion, our choice to follow our way instead of His way has a consequence. It has put us in a position of irreversible, unimaginable loss. We cannot expect that we would be able to fix what we have broken between us and God. We bear the guilt for it, and we should expect to bear the consequences of it. And the servant, in verse 26, does the only thing he can do. He fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Now, when you understand the numbers being talked about here, you hear that promise, and you, you have to just roll your eyes. Really? You're going to pay that back. This is 150,000 years worth of labor. That's the number we're talking about. But what else can he do? What else could he possibly do but beg for mercy and promise that he'll do what he can? Now, now, so far in the years of someone living in Jesus' day, nothing unusual has happened. There's a king, there's a great debt. The number is kind of ridiculously high, but aside from that, you know, if he can't pay the debt, he's got to pay the consequences. That's how it works. 
where the story gets crazy is in the next verse, verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He forgave him the debt of $60 billion. What Jesus is trying to illustrate here through the king is the extreme, the radical forgiveness of God. The prophet Micah rejoices in this forgiveness and describes it in Micah 7 in this way. Who is like you? A God pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Have you ever dropped your phone in the water and watched, depending on how clear and clean the water was, watched it just sink out of reach forever gone? Dropped your keys in the pool? Well, you can get those back. Dropped them in the St. Lucie River? You're not getting them back. Okay, That's the picture that Micah is giving here on a grand scale. That weight, that debt, that burden. The Lord has taken it and hurled it into the sea. And it goes sinking. And it will not come back. That's the extreme forgiveness of God. Another illustration. Colossians 2. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled the record of debt because of your sin and nailed it to the cross. Now, when a a criminal was being executed on a cross, they would, for the sake of those watching, they would write out the sins, the crimes for which this person was being executed, and they would put it up publicly for all to see. They would nail it at the top of the cross for all to see. So what was nailed, according to Paul in Colossians here, what was nailed on the cross was your record, your debt, was placed on the cross. Now once somebody died for that sin, for that crime, when they were executed for that crime, nobody else had to be executed for that same crime. There's no double jeopardy there. It's it's done. And what they would do on a debt, a financial debt, when that debt was written off, they would write across it, to telestai, which is the Greek word that means paid in full. It is finished. You know what Jesus said when he died? Telestai. It is finished. Paid in full. Your sin is placed on the cross and completely paid for. $60 billion doesn't matter. Forgiven like that. That's the picture of forgiveness that Jesus needs you to have. And therefore, to answer the question that Peter had of what our forgiveness should look like, how we should forgive others, Jesus went on to describe what the forgiveness of God is like. And then in Colossians 3, we hear this, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against anyone else, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In the way that the Lord forgave you, you are to take that same attitude towards one another. What is the attitude the Lord has taken towards your sin? 
He has taken it in all of its insane massiveness, all of your sin, and hurled it into the sea. He's nailed it to the cross, paid in full. The record is canceled. It's done. That's the type of forgiveness we are to have because it's the type of forgiveness we have received. How many times, Jesus, should I forgive the one who sins against me? Jesus says, I reject the premise of your question. If you're counting apologies, you're doing it wrong. That's not how this works. Now, I don't want to gloss over or ignore the fact that forgiveness is hard and sins have consequences and we can be hurt by other people. We'll be doing a Sunday school series the whole month of May. And if you don't come to our Sunday school, we, we meet here at 10 o'clock in the morning and we have just a 45-minute time of digging into God's Word in a different way, a more interactive way. I urge you to join us for that. But we're doing a special series in the month of May on peacemaking, on how in the body of Christ we resolve conflict, how we forgive, uh, bad things to avoid when we have conflict, things like that. And, and we're going to talk about some of the complexity of forgiveness. Because forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to be just like it was before once you're forgiven. It doesn't mean that you don't feel really hurt. But it does mean that when you forgive someone, you no longer count against them what they've done. You don't hold it against them. That's what the king did for the servant. That debt was gone. And God's forgiveness knows no limits. And it would be really nice if the story ended there. You know, if we could just close our Bibles at that point and say, what a nice story. Isn't God's forgiveness so great? He forgave so much. And the man went away rejoicing in the forgiveness of God. But the story doesn't end there. The second half of the story is to warn us that if forgiveness doesn't go deep, if it's not at the heart level, then we are in danger of not having been forgiven at all. Verse 28, When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! Now this is where the story has taken a disturbing turn. Having just been forgiven $60 billion, he goes out and tries to collect something worth reasonably probably about a few thousand. A denarius was worth um, one day's work at minimum wage, would be the way to think of it. So if you picture a hundred days, you know, about three months of minimum wage work, that's nothing to sniff at. But compared to what he was just forgiven, it's like something like one sixty thousandth or six hundred thousandth of what he had just been forgiven. And he's trying to, to collect on that debt. And the way he goes about it, it's, it's disturbing. He's, he's assaulting. This man, he grabs him, he chokes him. And you have to wonder, what's, what's going on in his heart that is, that is leading him to do this? Is he just naturally a vicious and violent person? Is he not aware of the irony of what's going on here? Or, or perhaps, I mean, we don't know, but perhaps there's still in his heart this feeling of, yeah, that king said he canceled my debt, but I wouldn't be surprised if he's going to come around collecting again. I mean, we're talking about a lot of money. So I need to do what I can to get ready to pay him back. He's not grasping how forgiven he is. Verse 29. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience on me, I will pay you. That's the same thing that the first man had said to the king, word for word. Have patience with me, I'll pay you back. And we would hope that that parallelism would continue. 
that just as he, he had pleaded for patience and received mercy, that when this servant pleads for patience, you would hope that the same words would come out of his mouth. Your debt is forgiven. I release you. Go. But it doesn't. It's not what happens. Instead, verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He responds opposite to the way that he has been treated. He will not show the same forgiveness announced over him by the king. And that story doesn't end well for him, does it? The other people report that incident to the king. They tell the king what happened. The king calls him in. He rebukes him. And then he says in verse 33, Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And since he failed to reflect the mercy of the king, he's given the very same punishment he had given to someone else. Verse 34, In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now, what were the chances that even on his own, working as hard as he could, he could have paid off $60 billion? Not very good, right? Now in jail, have his chances of paying off the debt improved? No, they have not. The conclusion Jesus gives to all this in verse 35. After describing the eternal punishment given to this servant, He warns, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's the answer to Peter's question. How many times, Lord, should I forgive? It's not about how many times, Peter. It's about where forgiveness comes from. True forgiveness comes from your heart. That's the other kind of radical that our forgiveness needs to be. Radical because it starts at and goes to and changes you at the root. It is deep. It's a forgiveness that's not just words where you say you forgive someone because that's what you have to do. Because you're supposed to do. Have you ever heard an angry child who's been wronged? And their, their sibling probably, because who else makes us as angry as a sibling? Their, their sibling has mumbled through a forced apology. And then you're like, okay, now forgive your sister, forgive your brother. And with all the resentment and anger and injustice that is boiling up within them, they go, I forgive you! That's, has that forgiveness come from the heart? It has not. That's not the forgiveness God shows us. And that's not the forgiveness He wants us to show. And if we end the, the lesson here, that's the kind of forgiveness I've set you up for. To, to forgive and to announce your forgiveness out of some sort of duty or obligation because, oh my goodness, I don't want God to get angry with me for not forgiving. We've looked at how radically extreme the forgiveness of God is towards us, and we've seen that we're obligated to show that same forgiveness, and that if we don't, we're in danger. So in fact, we could come away from this text understanding it in this way, that we have to forgive others if we want God to forgive us, and if we don't truly, sincerely forgive, then God will not forgive us, and may, in fact, revoke the forgiveness that He has already given us. That's how we could understand this and that is an understandable conclusion but that is not what Jesus is teaching because that is not gospel which comes first the chicken or the egg we don't have time to figure that out here it's the chicken but uh, the real question is 
which comes first, God's forgiveness or our forgiveness? Is God's forgiveness based on our actions? You could conclude that from the story because the king revoked his forgiveness. Or does our forgiveness come out of what God has already done on our behalf? Now this is where the parable, the story breaks down. Every parable is limited in what it teaches. It's not trying to teach you everything. And not every detail corresponds to the kingdom of God. And the fact that the king revokes his forgiveness is is good for the story, but it is not what Scripture says abundantly clearly throughout all the testimony of Scripture about how God's forgiveness works. Your, Your sins are cast into the sea. Your debt has been nailed to the cross. God does not take it back. There's no backsies with God. Okay, so we can't understand it as, well, if you don't show the right behavior, you're going to lose your salvation. That, that's not Scripture. Those who are by grace forgiven and saved will never have their sins counted against them. How you live, how you obey, how you extend grace to others does not earn or secure God's grace and love and forgiveness towards you. But rather, how you live how you obey, how you forgive, how you show mercy, that flows out of, it's the result of God's mercy to you. The Bible calls that the fruit of your salvation. If you are truly saved, that fruit will be seen. And and so the question of this parable and of Scripture again and again is if we do not see that fruit, what reason do we have to believe that the salvation is there? Any way of trying to understand this falls short if it does not come from the Gospel. Those whom God has forgiven will be inclined to show that same forgiveness to those that sin against them. John, 1 John 4.19 says, We love others because God first loved us. Keep that up there for a minute, Andrew. We love others because God first loved us. I want you to think about that verse. Because there are wrong ways to understand that verse. There are ways to read that and come away with an understanding that seems Christian and seems spiritual, but is not gospel. Because any way of trying to forgive and love people that is not rooted in the gospel will run dry. The first way we could misunderstand those words is to say, well, we forgive others because God forgave us. When God forgave us, He gave us an example. A good example for us to follow. And we think of Jesus being crucified, dying for our sins. And He said in in Luke 23, we can move on to Luke 23, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And we think, oh man, if, if Jesus can forgive the people who were executing Him, then shouldn't I be able to forgive whatever people do to me? He gave me such a good and compelling example to follow. Well, that's true as far as it goes, but it's not enough. Just having a good example before me doesn't change my heart and doesn't enable me to forgive uh, 77 times, 700 times, or even seven times. Another misunderstanding of we forgave because God forgave us, we love because God first loved us. Another misunderstanding is, is a subtle kind of guilt that we put upon ourselves. God forgave you so much. How dare you not forgive other people? 
Think of how bad you were. Think of how you offended a holy, righteous God. And compare that to what you're being asked to forgive. And again, there's a grain of truth in that, but it's not enough. And at times, that too will fail you because it does not meet the deep need of your heart. Only the Gospel does that. How does the famous verse go? Uh, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the example of God for salvation. No, that's not it. It's, the Gospel is the inspiration of God for salvation. No. The Gospel is the instruction of God for salvation. Still not it. Romans 1.16 The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. The good news of God's forgiveness does not just inspire us. It does not just instruct us. It actually gives us power in some way. And here's how it does that. I would suggest that we live our life as debtors. Emotionally. Spiritually. We walk around under a burden of not being enough. We don't feel good enough. We don't feel pretty enough. We don't feel strong enough. We don't believe we're thin enough. We're not smart enough. We're not popular enough. We're not loved enough. We're not successful enough. And that is a crushing debt that we feel. And it grows out of our being separated from God. We have each wandered away. Scripture says that He has put eternity on our hearts and we have set about searching for other things. We are like this servant who had an unpayable debt to the king. And we walk around ever mindful of our debt. We feel it. And it, it, it expresses itself into every human relationship that we have. That sense of emptiness finds its way into every friendship, every family, every marriage, every romance, every neighbor, every workplace, every church. We turn to the people around us and we try to squeeze out of them a little something to pay off the debt that we feel in our hearts. We want to squeeze out some affirmation, some acceptance, some approval. We want to feel better than them. We want to feel morally superior to them. We, we feel so empty. And until we can squeeze something out of someone else, we can't forgive them. When our hearts are empty, we cannot forgive. And that's how the Gospel enters your story. That sense of being in debt, that sense of being lost, of being unworthy, of not being enough, it is immediately and truly cut down at the root by the Gospel. Your debt is gone. You are welcomed home. You are declared worthy. Where you were once operating out of a sense of profound emptiness, you have now been filled. Not because you paid off the debt by your own riches, but because God has looked upon you and been merciful. When you experience that, you find that you do not need any longer to turn to the people around you to try to squeeze out a little something to help pay off the debt that you could never pay. The security of being forgiven actually empowers you to forgive. 
by removing the barriers to forgiveness. You no longer have a pride to wound. You no longer have an insecurity that needs to be, to be patched over. You no longer have an ego to stroke. There's no need to feel victorious over others. Whatever security, comfort, love, whatever you sought from other people, it is already fully yours. Your deepest needs have been met. Your need for those things are gone. I love the imagery of, of the, the 23rd Psalm. You're familiar. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 5, the psalmist says, You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. It's one thing to say, you anoint me with, with oil, you bless me, and I have enough. My cup is full. Our cup is not just full, brothers and sisters. It's filled to overflowing. Which enables us to not only feel forgiven, but to know we have everything we need to forgive others. There is nothing that their sin can do to chip away at and destroy the fulfillment you have in Christ. I said earlier I wish I could have combined this text with the one that came before it and spend a, a whole hour looking at how these two passages speak to us in stereo. Giving us a well-rounded picture of the struggle we face living together in the kingdom of God. They speak to us in stereo that sin and that hurt feelings and broken relationships are inescapable. Even among God's people. And yet, they show us what should be the defining characteristics of how God's people respond to sin. I love the way that the prophet Micah sums it up. What should God's attitude be? The people of God, what should the people of God's attitude be in addressing sin? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice. Don't let sin go unaddressed. Don't let it grow in a destructive way in the heart of your brother or sister. Don't let it go unchecked in the community. Do justice. Correct sin. Call it out. But as you do justice, have the attitude of God and love kindness. He is a God of justice, but He is a God of abundant, effusive, radical mercy and grace. It flows out of Him. And so as you do justice, love kindness. Forgive seven times, seven times, 70 times, 77 times, whatever it is. Abound in kindness and mercy. And how do we do that? We walk humbly before our God. When you recognize in your own heart that you are one who has received radical forgiveness, it humbles you. That justice was done when your Savior was struck down in your place. That humbles you. When your debt is clear, when, when your debt is paid in full and you didn't pay a cent to make it happen, that humbles you. And you turn and look at your brother or sister and have no need to demand a cent from them, but can instead love kindness and show them full, unhindered mercy. Forgive one another just as in Christ God forgave you. Love because He first loved you.
You are a debtor, yes. But your debt is paid in full because you have Christ. And now as you turn to your brothers and sisters, you confess as we will sing here in just a moment, all I have is Christ. And that is enough. I don't need to demand anything from you. I don't need to demand my rights. I don't need to demand to be proven true. I can forgive and and just as the king did. When a debt goes unpaid, who really pays the debt? The one who gave out the money in the first place. Where did that $60 billion go? The king swallowed the loss. When we forgive, we bear the burden. We pay the cost of the one that we forgive. And we can do that because our burden, our debt, is paid in full. All I have is Christ. And yet that is more than enough. Let us worship Him for that with thankful hearts this morning. We praise You, our Father, for the forgiveness that came fully and freely to us through Jesus Christ. And yes, it is a good example. Yes, it is good instruction for us. But more than that, You have, because of that, transformed the deepest chambers of our hearts. You have addressed our insecurity, our fears, our pride, our sense of unworthiness. You have welcomed us home to a Father's embrace. Help us to live out Your Gospel in the way we forgive and welcome one another. Loving as we have been loved, forgiving as we have been forgiven, and as we do so, may Your name be honored. We thank You for Your goodness to us. Together your people pray. Amen.